Luke chapter 2, verse 10. Actually, verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. You know, people had been hoping and hoping and hoping for the coming of a Messiah, and I don't, I don't think they got the Messiah they were expecting. You know, they were expecting a Messiah to come who would be militant. He was going to save his people from the hands of the Romans and the Greeks, and that was their Messiah. The, on this day, good news that will cause great joy for all the people. The message that this Messiah came to preach was one of grace, of truth, of love. And you know, they were right. He was a Messiah. He did come to save his people, not just in the way they expected. And I think of a verse that was a motto for us at Ozark, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this morning, as we start to celebrate the birth of Christ, we look forward to knowing what he came to do, how he came to save his people, not necessarily in the way they thought, but in the way that we needed. And that, that message is still for us today. That message is for all people. And we can celebrate this morning knowing that God sent his son to go to the cross for us so that we can be forgiven. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for sending your son. God, thank you so much for saving us. Father, we, we did indeed need to be saved. We needed rescue, rescue from our sin, rescue from the mistakes that we keep making even today. Father, you sent your son for us so that we could be forgiven. And Father, I just pray that as we come to the table and we think about all the things that you've done for us, God, that we would take it with a, a clear heart, a clear mind focused on you. In your sons and my prayer. Amen. There's communion tables on each of the corners whenever you're ready. Good morning again. Uh, again, I'm glad to see everybody here this morning. And this morning, uh, we are going to start a new series. We are going to take a month off from the book of Acts. Don't worry, we will return. We can't leave Paul where he's at. We've got we've to come back to him. But we're going to take a month off from that. And we're going to talk about, for the next few weeks the characters of Christmas, and, you know, how there are these different stories uh, all intertwined in the Christmas story, and uh, with different people who played different parts, different roles uh, in the coming of the Messiah. And so, uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 1, 
And so if you want to turn there, you can, or if you want to follow along on version. But while you're getting there, uh, in order to understand what we're going to be talking about over the next several weeks, we need to understand the history. Right? We have to understand history behind what's going on so this all makes sense. And so I know I just asked you to turn to Luke, and once you get there, bookmark it. And then turn over to Malachi. Malachi, it's at the end of the Old Testament, right before the New. And I don't know about your Bible, but in mine, there is a page. And it's in between, and it says New Testament. So we move straight from Malachi into Matthew. And why is this page important? Well, this page is important because within this blank page, or this page that only says New Testament, there are 400 years of history that are not recorded in, our, in Scripture. There are things that happen in between that if we don't know the history in between, we could be kind of lost when we get to Matthew. Because if you think about it, at the end of the Old Testament, the Jews were under the rule of Persia. By the time you come to Matthew, they are under the control of Rome. And so a lot of things take place within this period. And this period is known as the intertestamental period. The intertestamental period. And this was a period of 400 years, and it's often referred to as 400 years of silence. For 400 years, God's people do not hear from God. There's no prophets, there's no messages for them. It is 400 years of silence. And in this 400 years of silence, we see a lot of things happen. And there's a lot you could go back and and study the intertestamental period. It's really interesting. But there's a few things I want to highlight from this period. The first thing is just prior to this intertestamental period, we read about, or we learn about a guy named Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great. Uh, and Alexander the Great defeated Darius of Persia, and this brought Greek rule into the world. So now the Greeks are in control, and, and Alexander the Great is the reason for that. And Alexander was the student of a man known as Aristotle. And Aristotle started to bring uh, this philosophy, this uh, you know, Greek philosophy into the world. Uh, Arist- or Alexander uh, took that stuff that he was learning from Aristotle and he brought it along with him. And this is super important because everywhere he conquered, he brought Greek culture. And one of the things that he did when he brought Greek culture is he brought in Greek writing, Greek uh, Greek language. Matter of fact, it was because of Alexander the Great that we get the Hebrew Old Testament translated into Greek, and this is referred to as the Septuagint. When you read through the New Testament, any writing you see from the Old Testament uses the Septuagint, and this is because Alexander the Great has brought Greek into the world. And so, that's a big deal. Then, in 63 B.C., a man named Pompey of Rome conquered Israel, and that put all of Judea under the control of the Caesars. 
This eventually caused them to put Herod into uh, kingship, which we'll talk about here in just a little bit. And, and this Roman Empire became the ruler of all. You know, this is the, the people who taxed and controlled the Jews, and they were the ones who eventually would hang the Messiah on the cross. This was big because it now brought Roman, Greek, and Hebrew cultures all into the world. And not only are those two big important things, there's another big important thing that happened. If you read the Old Testament, there's two groups that you don't ever read about in the Old Testament, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Those weren't things until the intertestamental period. That is when they came to prominence. That's why when you read the Old and into the New, you don't see them in the Old. The first group we know is the Pharisees. They seem to care more about their own oral law than the law of God. It's sad. Some of their teachings were right on. The problem was is Jesus often disagreed with them because, you know, they were so legalistic and lacked compassion. Then there was a group called the Sadducees, which we've talked about going through the book of Acts. They were uh, the leaders of the Sanhedrin. Uh, They were uh, Sadducee, right? Why were they Sadducee? Because they didn't believe in the resurrection. And what's sad about this people is really they were kind of sellouts. They cared more about the Greeks. They admired the Greeks more than their own people. And so these are big things that happen in 400 years on a blank page. A, A thing that takes place in between the old and the new. But you see, what's so amazing about this, people are waiting and waiting and waiting to hear from God, waiting, hoping, anticipating, without ever realizing that during this whole time, God is setting things in motion. He's preparing. He's making a way for the Messiah to come into the world. And, and you know, I, I've heard it asked a lot of times, why did God send his son at this period of time? Why did he send his son into the Roman world? Why was that the right time? Well, you know, I was telling Cody this morning, as much as we don't want to like the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire was perfect for the gospel. Think about this. Because of Alexander the Great and the Greek being introduced, we now have a universal language. Everybody knew how to speak Koine Greek. The Romans were very good at, you know, architecture, and they were very good at roads. They were great with building roads, and the Roman roads were some of the best roads ever in history, and because of the Roman roads, it now made travel easier. When you have easier travel, what can happen? You can go from place to place easier, bringing with you the gospel. And not only that, Rome was the powerhouse If Rome was such a big powerhouse, who would want to mess with the powerhouse? Who would want to go to war with the biggest and the baddest? Nobody. And because there was no war, because Rome kept a tight thumb on everything, they didn't have to worry about going in and out of war zones. They didn't have to worry about being restricted. They were able to go freely because they knew there was no war in Rome. It allowed for them to go where they wanted without hesitation. And so God had been planning this thing all along, and that leads us to this. Luke 2.10, But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. 
And so over the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about this verse. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Why was it good news of great joy? How was this good news for the people? And this story impacted the lives of so many different people at this time. And the thing for us is that this same message, this same good news of great joy applies to us today. And man, do we need it. Right now, more than ever, we need good news of great joy. And as we look at these stories of these different people, we can see a lot of our own lives intertwined in the lives of these ordinary people. And so, this morning we're going to start by looking at some of the characters of Christmas. And we are going to start with Zechariah and Elizabeth. And so, we're going to start in chapter 1 of Luke, verse 5. And it starts like this. In the time of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. And so we read here right at the beginning that this has all taken place during the reign of Herod, the king of Judah. Herod was a very shrewd politician. He's also referred to as Herod the Great, by the way. He was a shrewd politician. He was considered a failure in his family, but yet he was considered good enough to be appointed as the king of the Jews. Why was he appointed the king of the Jews? Well, you know, the Caesars put him in control because they felt like the Jews could not handle their own legal disputes. They were constantly at odds with one another. A matter of fact, within this intertestamental period, we see a time of Jewish civil war. And so they did struggle with uh, settling their own disputes, their own problems. And so they put Herod in charge. And Herod reigns from 37 to 4 B.C. And during this time of Herod, we are introduced to two people. The first is a man named Zechariah. He is a priest who belongs to the priestly division of Abijah. And we meet his wife, Elizabeth, who was a descendant of Aaron. And so this is... Uh, two people who had a lineage of priesthood. This is important here in just a little bit. And, and it's no surprise reading that they were both of descendants of priesthood because listen to how they lived their life in verse 6. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Blamelessly. These were ideal followers of God. They did everything that God had asked them to do. Every command, every decree, everything that God told them to do, they did without blame. They didn't argue. They didn't tell God, no, that's foolish. They didn't do any of that. They did everything that God asked them to do. This should be a good example to us, right? Like we should look at the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth and think, man, I should live my life this way blamelessly for God, doing everything He asked me to do no matter what. Think about your life. How often do you follow God and all of His commands and all of His decrees without blame? We all kind of mess up with that from time to time. But these people, they were very godly people, very godly examples. But here was the problem. They had one flaw to the people around them. 
It says in verse 7, but they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. They weren't able to conceive. She was barren. She was not able to have children. And even if she could have children now, at this point, she was just too old. And so this was seen as a flaw by the people around her because at this time, the people viewed children as a blessing. And they are still a blessing, don't get me wrong. But in this time, if you, were, if you had children, that would, con- or that would mean you would be considered blessed. Exodus 23, 25 through 26 says, Worship the Lord your God, and his blessing will be on your food and water. I will take away sickness from among you, and none will miscarry or be barren in your land. I will give you a full lifespan. Deuteronomy 7, 14, You will be blessed more than any other people. None of your men or women will be childless, nor will any of your livestock be without young. And so, for them, if you were able to have children, you would be blessed. What would be the opposite of that? If you weren't able to have children, you were cursed. You would be considered cursed. You would be considered godless. a matter of fact, Job 15.34 says, For the company of the godless will be barren, and fire will consume the tents of those who love bribes. And so you would be considered blessed to have children. If not, you were considered cursed. But the problem is, is these weren't bad people. These weren't bad people. These were loyal followers of God. They did everything that God had asked them to do, and yet they had this knock on them by the people around them because you can't have kids. You must surely be cursed. And so now we have been introduced to Zechariah and Elizabeth, the story continues in verse 8. It says, Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Now, this just seems like, hey, that's just a couple of verses, but there's some really interesting things at play in verse 8 and 9 and 10. So we see that Zechariah was part of this priestly division, and his division was on duty. And so how did this work? How did these priestly divisions work? So there was around 24 different priestly divisions, and each of those priestly divisions had 900 priests in each division. This would total 21,600 priests. And so the way this would work is each division would serve one week every six months. Now, on the Sabbath, all the men of the division who were 24 years or older would serve. But then when you have the great feasts such as Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, all 24 divisions would serve. So it was possible on major feasts that we would see 21,600 priests serving all at once. That's a lot of priests, right? Like a ton of people serving. And so we see that this is during uh, Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as priest, and he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So they would have three tasks that would be, uh, they would have or three tasks that to decide who would do each task, they would cast lots. And so we have 900 priests and three jobs to do. And so they would cast lots. The first job was this, 
Uh, the first person would rekindle the fire on the altar and serve with the morning sacrifice. The second one, the second task would be the officiating priest for the day. But then the third task and the most important task uh, in their eyes was the trimming of the golden candlestick and preparing incense within the holy place. That was the most important because this person would be able to go into the holy place. Not everybody was allowed into the holy place except for this one person on this occasion. And so he goes in and he burns the incense. And when the time of burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. So he's in there, he's burning the incense. And while he's burning the incense, the people are on the outside and they are praying. And I love the, the, the look of this. I love the way this is described because the incense that would be burning, it would symbolize the ascending prayers of the saints. So as this incense is being burned and the aroma is entering the air, it would match the prayers of the people going up before God. We see this actually recorded in Scripture. Psalm 141, verse 2, May my prayer be set before you like incense. May the lifting up of my hands be like the evening sacrifice. Revelation 5.8, and when he had taken it, all the living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And so he is in there burning the incense. The people are praying. This would have likely been in the afternoon. It would have been the afternoon sacrifice. It would be around 3 o'clock the prayer time, remember, Jews had a 12-hour day from 6 to 6, and so this would be the last time that they would be able to do this. This would be the evening sacrifice. And here's something that I think is really amazing about this that I'd never thought about until I was studying this week. Think about this, 900 priests, 900 priests. And if it's a big, a big deal, a big feast, we would see 21,000 people working. And divided into three tasks. This is so important because the likelihood of this ever happening to, to go into the holy place was almost none. This would be the only time in this chapter, this moment that Zechariah goes into the holy place, this is the only time in his life that he will ever step foot in the holy place. Amazing. Not a lot of people get the opportunity, and this is his one opportunity to go into the holy place. It's almost as if God was planning something. Verse 11, the story continues. It says, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. I love the way that Luke writes this because, you know, you often think when an angel appears, it's just like you're there and then bam, he's right in front of you, like face to face. This almost makes it sound like this angel appears and he's just kicked back waiting for uh, Zechariah to notice him. You know, he's just leaning there waiting and waiting and waiting and then finally Zechariah turns around and sees him. And what does he do? He gets scared. What does anybody do who sees an angel when I'm the only person who should be in here? Who is this? He's frightened. He's gripped with fear. But then verse 13, it tells us, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. 
you know, I, I think this is really fascinating because it says, when the angel talks to him, he says, don't be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. What has he been praying for? You know, I think on the surface you would read that and you would think, man, he's been praying for a son. That's been his request, right? That's been his prayer all along. He wants a son. They couldn't have a son, and that's what he wants, a son. He wants a child. But I don't think it's that simple. I don't think that's necessarily the only thing he was praying for. A matter of fact, I don't think at this point that was his prayer at all, because when you read his reaction here in a little bit, you see, how in the world is this even possible? I'm too old. No, I think Zechariah's prayer here is for the Messiah. I think his prayer is, God, send this Messiah. Zechariah understands what is happening. Zechariah has been here and has seen a lot of these things that have taken place. He understands Herod is in charge. He understands that they are under the control of Rome. I don't think his prayer was just simply, God, give me a child. I think his prayer was, bring the Messiah. I don't think he didn't ever pray for a child. But I think his prayer was also, bring the Messiah, please. And he tells him, guess what? You are going to have a son, and you are to call him John. The name John, the Lord is gracious. How amazing. The Lord is gracious. He is going to show grace to Zechariah and Elizabeth. And he is going to bring joy to them and delight to them, but many are going to rejoice because of his birth. Because he is alive, because he has been brought into this world, people are going to rejoice, and we'll see why here in just a second. In verse 15 it says, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. And so the special diet being described here is what is known as a Nazarite vow. The word Nazarite, it comes from the Hebrew word to mean consecrated or separated. He is going to be set apart, and this vow is going to be the thing that separates him. So what does this look like? Well, Samson uh, made a Nazarite vow in Judges 13, 4 through 5. Now see to it or they tell him that he will take a Nazarite vow. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Samuel was another example of this in 1 Samuel 1.11. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. And so he would be taking this Nazarite vow. And then it tells us in verse 16, he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This is why your son is going to be so important because he is going to come and he is going to bring back the people of Israel to the Lord. He is going to go and he's going to prepare a way in the spirit and the power of Elijah and he is going to turn 
people back to you. He is going to come and he's going to preach a message of repentance. Turn your heart back to God. Scripture foretold that this man's purpose would be exactly this. In Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Malachi 3.1 tells us, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way of the Lord you are seeking. He will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. And so you are going to have a son. Your son is going to bring you great joy and delight, but many more are going to rejoice because of his birth, because his task, his mission, his purpose is to point people to the Messiah, to make the way ready, to make the path ready for when the Messiah gets here. And when he starts his thing, the road will be prepared. You have led him to this moment. What an amazing moment. The only time this man will ever step in the holy place and he meets with this angel who is going to change his world. In verse 18, Zechariah asks the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my well, our wife is well along in years. Valid question. He's an old man. We don't know how old, but we know that they believe they're old enough not to ever have kids. How is this even possible? I'm old and my wife is well along in years. I like how he words it that way too. Smart man, right? I'm old. She's, she's well along in years. but. And then verse 19. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. So this angel reveals to us who he is. There's two angels that are mentioned by name because of their importance in Scripture. The first one is Michael. Michael is the commander of the Lord's army. He is the, the warrior angel. And then there is Gabriel. Gabriel is the messenger angel. His job is to go and, and share the messages that God asked him to proclaim. And these two are important. And this angel we see here is Gabriel. And he tells them, or he tells them, hey, you know, I stand before God. I stand before God and I was sent to bring this message to you. But because you didn't listen, now you're going to be silent and not able to speak. And what's funny, we read this and we think he just didn't have the ability to speak. But when you read in chapter 2, or no, later in chapter 1 of Luke, it leads us to believe that not only could he not speak, but he couldn't hear as well. Because it says when they're trying to figure out what they're to name their son, he has to, or they have to communicate in sign language because he couldn't see, or he couldn't speak, nor could he hear. And so he is going to be silent, but also not be able to hear until the appointed time. And in verse 21, following, it says, Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. 
They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home, and after his wife Elizabeth became pregnant, and for five, or, and for five months she remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. He comes out, he can't speak. He goes back home. He's able to tell Elizabeth that she's going to have a child. She becomes pregnant. And she, she says this beautiful prayer that just goes to show what people thought of her. The Lord has done this for me. In these days she, or he has shown favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. How amazing that must have been for Elizabeth to have people looking down on her saying, you are cursed. You are cursed because you can't have a child. You are cursed. You are godless. When all along we know that she was a godly person. She did what the Lord asked her to do. All of his commands, all of his decrees, she followed it to a T. How great that must have felt for her in that moment to have that weight of feeling like she didn't, or that she was cursed, to have that weight lifted off of her. How that must have felt. Here's the, here's the thing that I, I want us to, to focus on this morning. Here's what I think the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth comes down to. I think it comes down to this. The good news gives us great hope. The good news, it, it gives us great hope. Because of what God has done, we have great hope. Hope came for Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were finally going to have their son after praying, after wondering if it was ever going to happen to them. And after they had given up thinking, there's never going to happen. We're too old for this. Even if we wanted to, to have kids, I can't. But even if I wanted to, I'm just too old. And in just like that, hope has entered into their life but not only did hope enter into their life, hope entered into everybody's life. Their son wasn't just here to just make them happy. No, their son is coming with a purpose, and his purpose is to point the way to the Messiah, to get things ready. And look back at verse 14. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. He was going to be special. People were going to rejoice because he was going to make the way ready. And the way he was making ready was the way for the coming of the Messiah. And we know that it is in the Messiah where we find our hope. Because this morning, let's be honest, we are broken. We are beaten down. We are in need of help. We are in need of great hope this morning. And do you know what? God had a plan. God had a plan. Genesis 3.15, and I will put enmity between you and this woman, or you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his hill. This is referred to, and this is a big word, it's referred to as the proto-evangelium. And what this means is, it's simply this, this is the gospel, this right here in Genesis, all the way in Genesis 3.15, this is the first mention of the gospel. This is the gospel that will be preached. Satan has come into this world, but guess what? My son is going to come into this world, and he is going to, he is going to be the Savior. 
Isaiah 9, chapter 6, or chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. God was sending his son into the world to be our hope, and he did just that. He came into this world, and he does exactly what he says he's going to do. He's going to save his people, and that is nowhere found better than in John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Because of the Messiah, we have hope. And you know, I think maybe for some of us this morning, that word is hard. Hope is a hard word because we're sitting here today and we're wondering, okay, what is hope? Where is hope? Because this morning, my life doesn't feel like it's going according to the plan that I've set out for myself. Maybe you're thinking that this morning. Maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, man, I thought my life was going to be different. I thought that my life was going to go according to plan. But guess what? I never planned for all my health issues. I never planned for a tough marriage. I never planned for a family that seems to be filled with dysfunction. I never planned to have a job that wasn't moving anywhere. I never planned for any of this stuff to happen. And you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, man, I thought life was going to be different. I thought life was going to be great and wonderful without all of these problems. I thought life was going to be better. Show me hope. 2020, 2021, it may feel to you more like a nightmare than anything that would resemble hope. And you may be thinking this morning, where is hope? hope. Where is hope? And you know, I kind of think Elizabeth and Zacharias might have thought the same thing. I think maybe they might have thought, man, life hasn't gone according to my plan. I wanted children. I didn't want this curse on us. We've done everything, God, that you have asked. We have followed your commands. We have followed your decrees. We have done everything that you have asked us to do. Where are our children? And even more so than that, I wonder if that's what Zechariah was feeling when he was praying in the temple. God, where is our Messiah? We are under the thumb of the Romans. We are under the thumb of our politician Jewish leaders. Where is hope? And just like that, Hope enters into their life. They were too old. She was barren. There was no way this was ever going to happen. And just like that, hope changes their life. And maybe this morning you are asking, God, where is hope? Hope is found in this. I bring you good news of great joy. For on this night, a Savior has been born. He is Lord and Messiah. I can tell you this morning, we have hope. 
We have hope because the Messiah came into this world to be hope for us. And it may not be the hope that you're wanting right now. Maybe, you know, just him coming into this world doesn't mean that all your problems are going to go away just like that. But you know what? You have hope. You have hope in a future that is better than anything we could ask for here. We have hope. Hope of a life spent with God. Hope of a life spent with our Father in heaven. That is hope. And maybe this morning you are asking God, God, where is my hope? I pray that you would realize this, that God has sent us hope. He had been praying, 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 praying for a Messiah, and we have a Messiah. And I'm going to ask the worship team to come up this morning. And as they do, maybe you are here this morning and you are asking for hope. Maybe life hasn't gone according to the way you planned it. Maybe life isn't going according to the, the dreams, the, the, the things that you had said in your mind. And maybe you are, are just asking God for hope. I've got good news for you this morning. Jesus Christ is hope. Jesus Christ is hope, hope of a future, hope of a life that someday all of those health issues you're battling, all of those struggles that you are battling, someday those things will all be gone and you will stand before God face to face knowing that you have been forgiven. You have hope of a future. You have hope of forgiveness. And maybe this morning you've started to lose hope. And if that's the case, I pray that you would spend some time just talking with God, laying out all those things in front of God. Lay out those frustrations, those, those things that are, are gnawing at you. Lay those out before God. We are not meant to hold on to all that. We can lay it before our Heavenly Father. Maybe this morning you've heard about hope, but you've never accepted hope. And maybe this morning what you need to do is you need to give your life to Christ. If that's the case, I pray that, that you would do so. You can come talk with me. You can fill out the Connect card. We would love to visit with you about it. The story of Elizabeth and Zechariah, I love it. I love it. It's so connected to the story of Christmas because not only was, were they going to finally have a son, not only was that weight going to be lifted off their shoulder, but their son was going to be so much more. The son was going to point the way for hope, and that hope comes, and that hope is found in Jesus Christ. And you can have that hope in your life. If you have a decision to make, if you need to spend time in prayer, pray that you do so. If you have a decision to make, pray that you would make it as we stand and we sing.